It's good to be here again. I get to hear about you from Brad occasionally. He tells me some of the things that God is doing in you and through you in this community, and I'm always thankful to hear of the good news, and I'm just thankful to, to be here today again with you to fill in for Brad. Listen to the inspired words of Scripture from Exodus 19 and 20. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything, in heaven or above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, neither you nor your son, daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land your God is providing you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Holy God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its revelation to our lives and of your heart and your character and the values of your kingdom. Father, bless our time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you heard the story of the Texas woman who recently was charged with a felony. You know her crime? Evidently, 22 years ago, she rented and did not return a VHS videotape, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. She said she didn't remember renting it. She said, it was probably my boyfriend at the time who had two young daughters. He probably rented it. Well, whoever rented it, no one returned it to the video store. And she was charged with a felony embezzlement of rental property. Can you imagine? She had no idea. She had no idea until recently when she got married and she went to change her name on her license and then she realized. They told her what had happened. There was a felony charge against her. They ended up dropping the charges and working it all out, but it was not without some stress on her part. As you can imagine, she said, I'm sure that impacted jobs that I applied for when they looked at my record, and yet she had no idea. You know, that law and the enforcement of that law seems very irrelevant now, doesn't it? It seems out of touch with where we are. 
It seems like it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't matter. They shouldn't have a charge against her. After all, who even knows what a VHS tape is anymore? I bet you guys, some of you probably don't even know. You do? A few of you know. Who knows what a Sabrina Teenage Witch is? I don't know what that is. I'm sure the video store where she rented it or he rented it or whoever rented it, I'm sure that store is no longer there, just like every other video rental store in our country virtually. And so it seems like that is something that is not really applicable for today. It doesn't really matter. And I think sometimes that's how we view God's laws. I think sometimes people view the laws of God that way. They're irrelevant They were written long, long ago for a time long, long ago, and they really don't apply to where I am, to where we are, to what's going on in our lives. And yet in so many ways, the Ten Commandments are timeless. They are timeless. No, we as New Testament Christians are not bound by the Jewish law and the Jewish customs that we read about in the Old Testament. Some of you know when you're doing your daily Bible reading and you get to Leviticus, (laughs) it's easy to get bogged down there because it's just rule after rule, law after law. If this happens, if this happens, here's what you do, if this happens. Well, we are not bound as New Testament Christians to that Jewish law, to that code of ethics and social code of norms. You see, our righteousness doesn't come from how perfectly we keep that law. Our righteousness is found in the perfect one, Jesus who came to fulfill the law. And yet, those laws are still relevant. They are still timely. They are still applicable. Again, we are not held to them, and we aren't in a system where we have to keep those laws to show our goodness. And we aren't bound by those things. And yet, they have meaning for us. Virtually all of those Ten Commandments are mentioned in the New Testament by Jesus or an inspired writer of the New Testament. And so they inform how we live life. Not, again, proving our righteousness, but they inform how we interact and live in a vertical relationship with God and in a horizontal relationship within the community, with other people. And that's so important. Our connection to God And the community is all about a relationship, making that connection with him and with other people. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. And some of us read the Ten Commandments. We read the old law and we say, wait a second. I thought it's about a relationship. Isn't our faith, isn't our expression of our faith about a relationship? And that's right. But that relationship is embedded in rules. It really is. What did Jesus say in John 14? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands. You see, the words that are carved on those stone tablets at Mount Sinai are really engraved in a larger story, a larger sacred story. In many ways, they are like chapter headings, and there's more behind them There's more detail. There's more to the story. They're like headlines, and there's a longer article. And so often we just see the headlines, don't we? And we react to the headlines in the news without reading the articles. I don't have time to read the articles. We just react to the headlines. And I think sometimes we do that with the laws of God. We just read the headlines. We just read the rules, and we react to them without knowing 
the story. The story in which those rules are rooted. The relationship that is embedded in those guidelines and principles. We have a 21-year-old son who recently got married, and so obviously he's out on his own and he's doing his own thing. But when he was at home, we didn't have a lot of rules, but we did have screen time rules. We, al- we only allowed him to have a certain amount of time playing video games or watching videos. And, you know, we kind of fluctuated the rules if it was a weekday or if it was a weekend or if it was summer, if it was a school year. And, and you would have thought we were waterboarding that kid. You know, this isn't fair. None of my other friends had these rules. You know, their parents are cool, unlike you. <laughs> Actually, he was very compliant, and he was very respectful, but he did not like it. I mean, he would tell you that today. He didn't like that, and he thought they weren't fair, those rules. And see, that's how most of us are, I think, with the rules, if you will, or the laws of God, especially the ones we don't like, the ones that really interfere with how we want to live. These aren't fair, God. I don't like these. No one else has to do these things. This isn't right. But there's so much more to the story. For us, we, we limited his screen time because we wanted him to get outside. We wanted him to develop other interests and talents. We wanted him to be imaginative. We wanted him to read. We wanted him to not just consume, but learn to contribute. And so we had all of these principles that are very positive, all these principles that, that really represent what we are about, all these values of our family behind this rule that he often saw as negative. It was us not wanting him to have fun. You see, those rules were really grounded in our character, the things that were important to us. Why do we have those rules? Parents, why do you have rules? Because you love your children. You want what's best for them. Even if they don't like it, you want what's best for them. You see, there's always more to the story. It's the same with God's laws. The commands of God reflect the values of his kingdom. That is very different, if you don't know this, very different from our world, from culture, from society. Sometimes we expect culture to reflect the values of the kingdom. That always surprises me. The commands of God reflect the values of his kingdom and his character. There's always more to the story. So the Ten Commandments are not just a code of ethics. They aren't just a list of rules. They aren't just something you put on a monument in a building and then fight for when someone wants to take them down. They are grounded in the kingdom of God. They represent the values of his kingdom. And they come from who he is, his character. And we need to know that story. We need to know what's behind those laws because that's where we discover the heart of God. And that's where we begin to develop the heart of God. This is seen so clearly in the seventh commandment. Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Now, I must say, if you're visiting today, especially if this is your first time here, you're thinking, what in the world is going on? I came on Adultery Sunday to church. That's, that's almost as bad as giving Sunday, right, for a visitor, <laughs> As far as I know, this is not a reaction to anything. We are in a series on the Ten Commandments, and somehow I drew the short straw and got, you shall not commit adultery. 
But it's important that we talk about this law. It's important that we talk about this principle behind this law, the heart of God behind this law, the character of God, the values of his kingdom. And so he says to his people, you shall not commit adultery. It's pretty straightforward, right? Pretty easy to understand. But again, there's more to the story. And it's important that we understand that story. This is about discipleship. In fact, this commandment, you shall not commit adultery, it's really not about sex. It's not so much about marriage, although we're going to talk about marriage. It's really about discipleship. The people of God keep the seventh commandment as an expression of the first commandment, to put God first, to make God and his kingdom a priority in our lives. And so really this, like all the commandments, are about discipleship. And so he says to his people, do not commit adultery. God designed marriage at the very beginning. Adam and Eve, God brought them together and formed this oneness. You shall become one flesh or one, the text says. And God provided that for them, and that was God's plan for them. Adam looked at Eve and he said, you're the only girl in the world for me, Eve. And God brought them together, and they became one. And from the very beginning, that oneness was meant to last. It was meant to be permanent. It wasn't meant to be fractured. And so when Jesus, much, much later, was asked about marriage and divorce, what did he do? He took them, very, he took them back to the very beginning. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the very beginning, the Creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Some versions say the two will become one. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one, let nothing separate. You see, from the very beginning, marriage was meant to be permanent. There is this oneness that God planned and provides for us in marriage. And it's not to be fractured. Adultery, of course, or participating in sexual activity with someone, anyone other than your spouse, does that very thing. It breaks the covenant. It fractures the oneness that God provides. His design and what the Bible describes for marriage, which is an incredibly serious offense. In fact, if you have read the Old Testament at all, you probably know that this crime, breaking this rule, could be punishable by death for Israel, for God's people. This was a very serious thing for God and for God's people. In fact, that's why God often used this as a metaphor to describe Israel's unfaithfulness to him. They would constantly bow down to other idols and other gods. And he didn't just say, hey, stop doing that. He described it as, you are cheating on me. You are committing adultery against me. We are in a covenant relationship. And by your actions, you are breaking that covenant. You are fracturing that oneness that we are to have. An example of that is what God tells Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6. Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. That's not like the easy-to-read version 
where someone thought, you know, adultery sort of fits that. We should put that word there. That's how God describes the relationship that he has with Israel when they are unfaithful to him, when they bow down to other idols and other gods, when they put something in the place of God. So let's take a look at the story behind this commandment. Let's spend a few minutes looking at the rest of the iceberg under the water, the article under the headline. Let's read the chapter behind the chapter heading. And to do that, I want us to look at three different areas. First of all, the process. How does it happen? How does this happen? I think it's important for us to really strip back some layers and see what's going on here. How does adultery happen? But also, the principle. Remember we said rules that are sometimes seen as negative, really, when it comes to God, like us as parents, there are positive principles behind it that reflect the character of God, the nature of life in his kingdom. So what's going on? What's at a deeper level behind this commandment? And finally, the plan. How do you move forward? How do you honor God in this area of life? Remember, this is very serious to God. So what do we do? Where do we go? How do we live? We'll try to do this pretty quickly. First of all, the process. How do people stand up, dressed up, in front of family, in front of friends, in front of God, in front of each other, and pledge their love to each other until death separates them? How do they do that and then someday break that covenant? They pledge not to leave They pledge to remain until death separates us, until death do I part. By the way, did you know that in some marriages today, some weddings today, they've actually changed the vows, and it's no longer until death separates us or until death do us part. It's something like, as long as our love shall last. As long as our our love shall last. It sounds like a timing belt on your vehicle. You know, as as long as it lasts, we're good. It gives an escape route. There's always a door open. How do people stand up? They pledge their love and their faithfulness to each other in front of God, in front of family, in front of friends, to each other, and then eventually break that covenant. Some of you know this question. You know it in your own life. You know it in the lives of your loved ones, your children, your friends, your neighbors. You have wrestled with this question. Jesus gives us some insight in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, where he often talks about some of these laws we've been talking about, but he says, here's more to the story. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, you have heard that it was said, Jesus says, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I think we could change that male, female, female, male, it all fits, right? And so Jesus says, you've heard the law, do not commit adultery. But let me tell you more to the story. If you look at someone else, male or female, lustfully, then you're already going down that road. You've already committed adultery in your heart, he says. So just when you thought this sermon wasn't going to apply to you today, Jesus says adultery begins on the inside. Please understand, and I know you probably know this, so often adultery is a symptom of something else, usually many other things. It's just the outward, visible manifestation of other internal things going on within the relationship or within a person. Adultery is kind of the the part that 
is the manifestation of those things. Jesus says it starts on the inside. Husbands and wives experience some kind of dissatisfaction for whatever reason, and they begin to look at things differently. They begin to look at each other differently. They begin to think differently. And pretty soon, they they even begin to rewrite some of their history. They revise some of the things that have happened so they can create a narrative that then empowers them to look somewhere else, to look at something or someone else. That's what happens so many times. You've probably seen it. You've heard about it. And what happens is their eyes, their hearts begin to look and linger in places they don't need to. In the literature, it's called alternative monitoring. Alternative monitoring. I, I experience this every time my Wi-Fi is slow, every time I get my phone bill, every time there's a sprinkle outside and my dish television doesn't work. <laughs> I start noticing the other carriers, the other phone companies, the other cable companies, and I start noticing their ads, and I start thinking, hmm, I wonder if I can get a better deal. I wonder if I can get faster Wi-Fi. I wonder if I can save some money because this phone bill is ridiculous. And maybe I even go so far as to look online, do a little searching, maybe make a phone call and see, hey, is this something that we should do? I am monitoring the alternatives to my situation. Maybe the grass is greener somewhere else. That's what happens in marriage sometimes. You see, it starts on the inside Ken Jones is the former president of Lubbock Christian University. He is a friend to our congregation in Edmond, Oklahoma, and and he has spoken there. We brought him in to consult us, and so we actually brought him in recently to do a little bit of consulting just about ministry and life through this odd time that we're in and trying to come back together, and he always has so much wisdom to share. But one of the things he shared this time with us, some of our church leaders, was something that he has refined over time, and he shared it across the country And it's not really unique to marriage. In fact, he didn't share it in the context of marriage, but I think it applies so much. And this is it on the screen there. He said, there is fatigue that leads to fog that leads to flirtation. Fatigue leads to fog that leads to flirtation. Again, he didn't necessarily share it in the context of marriage. It was more in a personal or ministry context, church context, community context this need for relational energy and staying connected to each other. But boy, doesn't it apply to what we're talking about today? You see, it begins with some type of fatigue or perceived fatigue. You're emotionally exhausted. You're physically tired. You don't have any energy. You're spiritually depleted. And your love bank is just running on fumes. And you say, well, you know, sometimes that's natural, that happens, but this is day after day, week after week. My love bank is running on empty. And so you begin, or this person begins, to think differently. And their thinking becomes clouded. They find themselves in somewhat of a fog, and they begin to question things they never questioned before. They begin to ask questions and search in ways they never did before. And by the way, this process isn't always bad. Sometimes this process is needed and necessary because sometimes we are in a bad situation, a negative situation, whether it's marriage or ministry or church life or community or job or whatever, and we need to go through a process like this to reevaluate, to bring us to a better place. But sometimes, often, this is not a good process. 
because we end up leaving something that is good, that is God-ordained, that is His will. Our mind becomes clouded. We begin questioning things. We begin searching, and we begin creating this rationale to get us to that third step, flirtation. And sometimes that is literally flirting, having conversations that you would never have had before, saying things that you would never say before, spending time alone with someone that you know is not right, having this idea that, oh, she laughs at my jokes. She thinks I'm funny. Oh, he understands me like no one else. The more I get to know him, the more I see how much he really knows me. You see the cloud, the fog, and the thinking that leads to the flirtation? And many times that's exactly what happens. And our minds and our eyes look and linger in places we don't need to be. You see, this process is based on a fundamental yet flawed question. And here's the question. What will make me happy? What will make me happy? Because I deserve to be happy. God wants me to be happy. I want to be happy. I need to be happy. I deserve to be happy. So what will make me happy? And that becomes our highest value, our greatest aim in life. I mean, after all, we are all about the pursuit of happiness, right? What will make me happy? But you see, that's the wrong question. If Christians ask that question, when will they ever take up their cross and follow Jesus? If messengers of the gospel of Christ ask that question, when will they ever put themselves at risk to share their faith? If husbands and wives ask that question, then what is going to happen the first time or the repeated time when you are not happy? You are going to search for happiness because it is the ultimate goal. It is the highest aim. I deserve to be happy. I want to be happy. Do you remember earlier I said the kingdom of God is different from our culture. It's different from our world. It stands in contrast. This is one of those important areas where there is a big difference. Because personal happiness is not the greatest aim in life. It's not our greatest goal. It's not the highest aim of citizens of heaven. And that is who we are first and foremost. We belong to God. We live in his kingdom. Yes, I know one day we hope to be in heaven and we'll be in the kingdom of heaven, but that's happening now. We are in the kingdom of God where he reigns, where the rule of Jesus informs everything that we are, everything that we do. That's now as well. And as citizens of heaven, happiness is not the greatest goal. I know we all want to be happy, and that's not inherently wrong, but when that becomes the highest measure, then you can see where it leads us down paths that don't honor God. It's the wrong question. Gary Thomas has written a book called Sacred Marriage. It's a great book. It's a little bit older now. It's been around a while, but I highly recommend it. Sacred Marriage. One time we did a preaching series based on his book, Sacred Marriage, and I don't know what happened, but there was a typo in the bulletin, and what came out that Sunday for the sermon was Scared Marriage. <laughs> And a lot of curious people show up. A lot of guys saying, this sermon's for me. I know this sermon's for me. Sacred marriage. But in this book, he asks a very important question. And the question is this. What if God designed marriage more to make us holy than to make us happy? 
Now that's something if you're married, you can wrestle with for a while. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Because if you get serious about that question, it changes everything, doesn't it? It changes every aspect of your life, of your marriage, of your identity, of how you view your spouse, how you treat him or her. It changes everything. Have you ever thought about your marriage as the place where God cultivates discipleship, where God develops the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of those things. What if he is using your marriage to develop and demonstrate those things in your life? Yeah, but I just want to be happy. <laughs> That's not the highest aim. That's not the greatest goal. There's something more profound. There's something bigger, bigger than ourselves. Do you remember what we said? God brings them together to form one. That's God at work. That transcends happiness. And that's a good, good segue to the next part of the story, the principles, the principles behind the law. You see, every law reveals the lawgiver. What does this law, do not commit adultery, reveal about God? What does it reveal about life and his kingdom? You see, God instructed us not to break that covenant, not to commit adultery because he is faithful. He is loving. He is pure. He is a covenant-keeping God. It's who he is. It's his nature. And therefore, those qualities are valued in his people, among his kingdom. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. You see, a speed limit sign that we encounter on the road is not there to keep you from having fun. Now, Sometimes I feel like it's there to keep me from being on time, but it's not there to keep you from having fun. Why is it there? It is there to reflect what a community values, theoretically, right? It's, it's there because the community, our state, our city, our nation, it values life. It values keeping people safe. It wants to put these things in place to provide for us and protect us. The same is true about this command of God, the command not to commit adultery. It's not there to keep people from having fun or to keep people from being happy. It is there to reflect the nature of God, his faithfulness, his purity. And by keeping that command, we are provided. And he provides that faithfulness to us and he, he protects us from, from harm and from emotional and physical, and relational strain and stress. I mean, we've seen it. We've seen the fallout in our families, in our homes. God wants to protect us from that, from the emotional pain, from the spiritual pain. He wants what's best for us. You see, those are the positive things behind what we sometimes view as negative. Whatever the command is, these things represent the heart of God and what he wants for his people. So what do we do? What's the plan moving forward? How can we honor God in this important area of life? Well, I can stand up here and just say, don't commit adultery, but that will only take us so far. If you're fatigued 
Or if your mind is in a fog, those words may fall on deaf ears. You need the rest of the story. In fact, more than that, you need to know that God wants to make you a part of the story. This isn't just God's story. This is your story. So if you're married, then you have an opportunity to represent God, to pursue the heart of God, to demonstrate the character of God, to live by the values of God's kingdom. You want your kids to encounter God? I mean, we all as parents want that. As grandparents, we want that. We want our kids to see God, to experience God. Well, show them God with your marriage. Show them the faithfulness of God. Show them the unconditional love of God. Show them the covenant-keeping God that you serve. Let them see that day in and day out. You want your spouse to understand and experience the love of God? Then love him or her with the love of God. Not a conditional love, but unconditional, covenant-keeping love. In fact, if you want, if you want to experience how much God loves you, then learn to love like God. You can know the love of God when you learn to love like God. Because when you love someone unconditionally, when you love them not based on what they did or didn't do, what they said or how good you feel or whatever the circumstances are, you just love them because you are in a covenant relationship with them, you begin, you begin to understand how much God loves you. You want God to love you no matter what. You mess up, you do something you shouldn't do, you say something you you shouldn't say. You want God to still love you. You get to experience that kind of love when you love your spouse that way. See, that's life in the kingdom of God. That is so much different than life in our world. We can reflect the values of God's kingdom and the character of God by being covenant keepers in our marriages. If you're single... Don't make happiness or pleasure the highest aim, the greatest goal, the number one value. I want to seek pleasure. I want to seek happiness because that will take you places probably you don't need to go sometimes. Your eyes and your heart will look and linger. If you're married, same thing. Don't make your marriage, don't make happiness the greatest aim of your marriage. It'll take you places you don't need to go sometimes. Because the truth is, we know this if you're married, You're not always happy. You don't always feel the most loving or that your spouse is being the most loving. So don't go down that road. Make holiness, the pursuit of holiness. Whether you're single or married, make the pursuit of holiness, not the pursuit of happiness, the most important goal. And watch what God does. In Ephesians 5, we read about marriage. And we don't read that we interact in marriage based on circumstances or feelings, do we? In verse 21, it says we are to submit to each other. That is in the context of this discussion on marriage. Yes, he will go on to say, wives, submit to your husbands. But to begin with, he says, we submit to each other. There is mutual submission there. But what is the standard? What is the condition for that submission? It is out of reverence for Christ. He goes on to say, wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. And then he goes on in verse 25 and says, husbands, love your wives. And again, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. 
He doesn't say you should submit, you should respect, you should love, you should sacrifice because he or she deserves it, because you feel good about what they've done recently, because he loves you, you should respect him, because she respects you, you should love her. It's not what he says. It's always about Jesus. It's always about who we are as followers of Christ, as citizens of his kingdom, of the kingdom of God. It's not so much about this other person. It's not about my feelings. It's not even about our circumstances. It is about my commitment to God. I submit out of reverence for Christ. I love and respect following the example of Jesus. You see, there's a difference there. We are pursuing holiness, not happiness. Oneness in marriage is not about staying together because the other person makes you happy. That's a contract. That's not a covenant. And that is a recipe for a fractured relationship. Oneness in marriage is about loving God and wanting to reflect his heart and live according to his values. I honor my marriage vows because I honor God. I keep the seventh commitment or the commandment because I want to keep the first commandment to put God first. As we wrap up, let me just tell you about my friends, Dean and Virginia. They're a couple at our church. She passed away two or three years ago. They were dear friends of ours. They'd been married over 70 years. Can you imagine? Over 70 years. Virginia, in the last several years of her life, was in a memory care facility. And then her health really dropped off and so they moved her into a skilled nursing facility. And they gave me a call and they said, we think her days are numbered. And, and so, you know, would you come see her? Of course. And I remember going into her room and her family. She has a wonderful, loving family. They're all gathered around her bed. Her husband, Dean, is right there. And I just kind of knelt down beside her bed. I knew she really couldn't hear me. But I hoped that she could feel the love that I was trying to send her way. So I just knelt down beside her bed and just talked to her for a little bit, just told her some things. And as I was standing back up, I looked at the foot of her bed on the wall, and there was a, a little picture on the wall, a little framed black and white photo. And it was a little bit crooked on the wall, and there was nothing else on the walls in this room. You know, they had just put her in there temporarily. She, she hadn't been in there very long. There was just one black and white framed five by seven picture, a little bit crooked hanging on the wall, and it was of this beautiful young couple on their wedding day. It was Dean and Virginia. And I thought, there's nothing else on the wall. If you have one thing on your wall, it is going to be the picture of the love of your life. And I'm sure one of her family members, probably one of her daughters, put that on the wall. Just so maybe she could see it if she opened her eyes or if she looked up. It was right at the foot of her bed so she could see it. You see, that picture was a picture of love and faithfulness, and covenant keeping. But it wasn't just that little black and white five by seven picture on the wall. It was the lives that they lived out for over 70 years. It was amazing. When she was in memory care, he would go see her every single day. Every day. He would go see her, and he would spend hours with her. But he always had this routine that he did with her. They started it long before that. He would lean over her and put his forehead on her forehead, right in her face. And he would sing, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. 
you make me happy when skies are gray. He would sing that song to her. Do you think her family, her kids, her grandkids, do you think their relatives, their friends, do you think we, their church family, saw a picture of love and faithfulness every day? We saw God revealed to us. The faithfulness of God, the love of God, the covenant-keeping nature of God, we saw that lived out in front of us, and what a blessing it was. Because it was more than just seeing a good marriage. Yes, they have a good marriage. No, they have a kingdom marriage. They are showing us life in the kingdom of God that transcends this world. They are showing us the rest of the story. Now, before we quit, let me tell you, maybe you've messed up in this area. Maybe you've messed up in the area of lust. Maybe you've messed up in the area of adultery. Maybe you have broke your covenant in marriage. I'm going to tell you that I don't think adultery is the unforgivable sin. I don't think lust is the unforgivable sin. That's not what my Bible says. There is forgiveness to be found. God can restore. God can rewrite your story. He can redeem the pain. Does it make it go away? Does it mean there's not consequences? No. But God is a God of forgiveness and mercy. And God can bring that to you and begin to work in your life to rewrite your story. Because there is always more to the story. If this church family can help you in some way today, I'm sure they would be happy to lift you up in prayer, to encourage you, to walk alongside you through life. Just make that known as we stand together and sing.